Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together. Oh Lord, as we just embark upon this study, this new book, uh, Lord, just speak to us, we pray. Uh, Father, we recognize that because your word tells us that every page of scripture is there for our learning. Lord, that we would have comfort, we would have hope, and Lord, that we would have peace in the midst of a world that really knows very little of peace. And so, Father, this morning, just speak to us individually, we pray. And Lord, as we read these things, although they're historical accounts, Lord, help us to understand the impact that these things should have on our lives. As we look at the successes and failures of those that followed you and those that rebelled and walked away from you. And so, Father, just soften our hearts now, Lord. Help us to receive what you have for us today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are beginning a new book, but really it's just a continuation. We move into Second Kings, or if you like, Fourth Kings, because First uh, and Second Samuel are often considered the kind of parts of the books of Kings as well. And really, in the original Hebrew, they'd have just been scrolls. And simply at this point, there was a division because the scrolls got too big to carry around. Um, so they divided them. Um, but we're just moving on, really, with the same narrative that we had. But I thought it might be helpful just to look at some comparisons between First Kings and Second Kings. Because we do see some interesting things. And firstly, in First Kings, we see the kingdom established under David. That's where First Kings starts. Second Kings ends with the monarchy in total disarray, collapsing under King Zedekiah right at the end. The northern kingdom, by the time we get to the end of the book of Second Kings, will have gone. It will have gone off into captivity. And the southern kingdom of Judah will all be all that's left. First Kings opens with Solomon's glory. As we see Solomon, this wonderful king, a kingdom at peace and at rest and so on. And it closes with Jehoiachin's shame. And we'll look at that when we get there. Um, and it's just such a contrast between this, what could have been, and then what they ended up doing and experiencing, simply because they rejected God. It starts with a blessing in First Kings, and it closes with a curse at the end of Second Kings. First Kings opens in obedience. The nation's following God. They're following on from David. David's been a great king. The real man after God's own heart, we're told. And Second Kings closes in disobedience. First Kings starts with the progress, or we see charting the progress of apostasy as things gradually get worse. And if you remember, we keep hearing that refrain, speaking of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all Israel to sin. The first king of the northern kingdom, rather than following God, he rebelled. He went his own way. And again, we've said a lot, uh, many times already that his intentions weren't necessarily to rebel against God. Same as a lot of people in this world. They don't necessarily think, right, I'm going to rebel against God. They just do their own thing. And then they try and do things that they think will be beneficial to them. And that's exactly what Jeroboam did. And of course, the, as we'll see in Second Kings, we find the, the consequence of all of this apostasy starting now to be displayed to us. In First Kings... It's his man's best attempt to rule himself. You know, we all think we can rule, don't we? We all think we, we've got it sorted. You know, if we were prime minister, how we would do things differently, you know? And, and we see, of course, in First Kings how man's best effort just doesn't work. Second Kings records God's judgment for man's failure. You know, we think we're in control even of our own lives, but we fail. You know, an interesting test is if you, you know, sit down and make a list of all the rules that you think you're going to keep in your life and then look at the, ha- at the end of a week and see how you got on. You can't even keep your own standards, let alone God's standards. First Kings, we see the long-suffering of God. God being patient. You know, the number of times that God gave these kings another opportunity, another chance. We see his grace time and again. And then in Second Kings, we see God's judgment. Enough. Effectively is what God says, and God now brings judgment. In First Kings, Elijah really is the sole prophet. Now, there's been a few other prophets that have come onto the scene, but none of you know, none, none of the really significant prophets from a biblical perspective. But Elijah is the key character speaking for God in First Kings. When we get to Second Kings, during this period of time, almost all the prophets that we read of in Scripture have their day. Elisha is going to be the prophet that's going to follow on, and we're going to see him introduced. 
uh, and uh, really thrust into ministry, as it were, uh, in a moment as we look at the text. But Hosea, Amos, Joel, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, they all preached to the nation, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, during this period of time. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that first period is where you see God's long-suffering. That Elijah was there trying to draw the hearts of the people back to God. And then when we look at Second Kings, as God starts to bring his judgment, God just sends loads of his ambassadors to warn the people. You know, judgment really is coming. You've got to do something. You've got to make a decision. And how true that is today in the world in which we live. The time frame that we're looking at, First Kings really takes us from around about 985 BC um, to about 841 BC. And then Second Kings picks up from there and will take us down to the end of the southern kingdom, end of Judah in 587, when finally Judah is taken captive to Babylon. Just to give you some of the outlines, the first portion of Second Kings, the first 17 chapters really, uh, we're looking at the, the divided kingdom, the two kingdoms that exist, so the northern kingdom being that of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, we're going to see the end of Omri's dynasty. You remember Omri, this king, and we're told that he was worse than any of the kings that are before him. And his son, Ahab, is the one that we've been looking at recently, where we're going to see two of his grandchildren, Ahaziah and Jehoram, both have short times reigning. Uh, then we're going to see a revolt and an end of that dynasty, and this individual called Jehu will come to the throne. And he's going to purge the nation of this worship of Baal. And in many respects, he seems to be a good king. But he's not, and we'll see as we get there. Um, we see, again, Judah's rulers down south, uh, Athaliah, the queen. We're going to look at this in a moment. I'll show you the, the kind of family tree of how all this works out. Uh, and also a good king. Finally, we have a good king down south uh, in Joash. Uh, then we're going to see uh, the rest of uh, Israel's kings again up north. Jehoaz, uh, Joash, some of these names sound very sim- similar. And some of them doesn't help us because we have uh, the same king referred to by different names, uh, which can confuse if you're not aware of that. We'll look at it in a moment. Uh, down south again, Judah's kings, we're going to see... Um, Amaziah and Azariah, and when we get to chapter 14 and onwards, uh, and then Jeroboam the second. So another king, Jeroboam up north. <coughs> Down south, we then move on to Azariah, and we've shown you the charts before, they're in the notes as well. Uh, and then again up north, you've got the final kings really of the northern kingdom Zechariah, Shalom, uh, Menahem, uh, Pekiah, and Pekah. And then finally, down south, we've got Judah's kings, Jotham and Ahaz. Um, That brings us then to the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom. In 722 BC, when the king of Assyria, and we'll see it in the text as we study, if the Lord tarries, we get that far. By the time we get to chapter 17, we're going to see the northern kingdom will fall. And they're taken away captive. And the the Assyrians were very cruel. And you you can go to the British Museum today, um, and there's a whole room that really depicts the fall of Samaria and the whole of this period of history. Um, There's lots of pictures and reliefs that have been taken from the palaces that were in Assyria. Um, all the evidence is there of these events. Um, the rest of the book of Second Kings, really, the focus is going to be on the southern kingdom. That's all that's left. So from chapter 18 to the end of the book, chapter 25, we're going to see Hezekiah, another one of the good kings down south. But then we're going to see Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, the worst king that Israel, or that Judah, has. Uh, and then his son also is very bad. But then we see a great reformation under Josiah. And Josiah, just a, a very, very young man, very, a child, actually, when he becomes king. Um, but Manasseh, at the end of his life, repented. He turned back to God. And we see the impact that has on this young Josiah. And then, again, recurring apostasy, which will ultimately lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we're going to see, after that, uh, a... Governor put in place, uh, get a liar. He's going to be assassinated, uh, and then we'll have comments to make about this individual Jehoiachin, uh, which is very interesting because there's a blood curse um, that's placed upon him, uh, which you'd think, if you didn't know better, can have a real impact on God's plan of salvation and redemption because God had promised that a line, the seed would come, the one that would come that would be a descendant not only of Adam but ultimately then of David. And then God effectively cuts off that line and says, none of your descendants will rule. So we'll look at that when we get there and see how God gets around that problem. 
Okay, just to give you another, uh, hopefully... Uh, help you to understand the uh, breakdown. We've got Ahab, we've seen Ahab, we've been looking at him for the last few weeks, this king of the northern kingdom, Israel. He marries Jezebel, this wicked queen, um, and as we said, you know, even in today's culture, we recognize the name Jezebel. Not many parents name their children Jezebel. Uh, it's not a, a good name to go with. It's recognized as being bad. Well, they have their son Ahaziah. Uh, he's not a good king either. He reigns for just two years, and we'll see his end in a moment as we look at the text. Um, but then, because he has no children, his brother, uh, another son of Ahab and Jezebel, Jehoram, comes to the throne. But he's also called Joram. So sometimes in the text, if you're reading it, you may read Jehoram, or you may read Joram. Either the same person, um, but it just can get a little confusing if you're not aware of that. He reigns for 12 years, and that then brings an end to this uh, dynasty of Omri. Uh, then we find Jehu would come to the throne. He reigns for 28 years, and we'll look at that subsequently when we get there. So, but we also find that Ahab and Jezebel have a daughter by the name of Athaliah. Well, she ends up marrying Joram, who is the son of Jehoshaphat. Now, this is where it can get complicated, because then you have a Jehoram in the northern kingdom that's reigning, and at the same time, a Jehoram in the southern kingdom, to individual people, but both have the same name. And it doesn't help. He reigns for eight years, but he's also called Joram. So sometimes you'll find that you're talking about Joram or Jehoram or Joram or Jehoram. Is that clear? I'm trying to make this easy to understand. Okay, and then they have a child, Ahaziah, which doesn't help because we also have an Ahaziah there. You know what it's like, don't you? You know, we're popular names. I mean, George, of course, is the name that everybody's been going for recently. And, you know, so there's lots of popular names that in culture we go with. And obviously in Israel at that time, it was very similar. He reigns for just one year, but then he is killed by his mother, this, uh, this daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And Athaliah, by the way, is probably not a good name for a child, so matter that if you're thinking, don't go for that one. Um, she then becomes king, or queen rather. Uh, she then becomes queen after she's killed her own son. Um, for six years she will then reign. Um, then a daughter of Jehoram, or Joram, uh, named by the name of Jehoshiba, she then, she's kind of a half-sister of this individual, she then takes his son, Joash, and hides him away from Queen Athaliah. Because Athaliah is trying to destroy all of the royal line. Now again, this is interesting because God had promised right back in Genesis that he was going to send a saviour. And all of the story of the Old Testament really is the story of how God ensured that Jesus would be born. That the Messiah would come. And we see so many times the devil trying to wipe out this line. If he can stop this lineage and stop any possibility of the Messiah being born, he wins. And he knows that. That's why we have, when we get even to the New Testament, Herod trying to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. That's all part of the same thing. And all those things we read about in the Old Testament, all the battles. And some people get very cross about why God instructs uh, Joshua to wipe out whole groups of people. Well, because there's a lot to all of this, but they were intent on destroying God's people. And it was like either them or us. And this is another one of those situations. Joash is the last one left, last man standing in effect. He's hidden again for just uh, for six years or so um, while Athaliah reigns. And then um, they bring him out and they put him on the throne and he becomes king from then on. And so we'll look at all of those things when we get there. But just so you're aware, these will be in the slides. So just so you can see how the family relationships go um, and understand again that we've got these different names uh, in different kingdoms or same names, different kingdoms, just so we don't get confused. Okay. Let's jump into the text, shall we? So, Second Kings chapter 1, verse 1. And we read, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So, the history, Moab's been a vassal state, effectively, of Israel. They've been paying tributes. But now Ahab is dead. And obviously they think, well, this new king... We don't really uh, have any regard for him. So they're going to try and uh, assert their own authority and try and break free from uh, the uh, taxation that Israel were placing upon them. And obviously this goes really back to the days of Solomon. And so this happens. Now, interestingly enough, there's a stone that's been discovered uh, and referred to as the Moabite stone. Uh, and there's an inscription on this stone by the Moabite king, uh, Mesha, his name. That's a, a picture of the stone, or steel, as it's referred to. Uh, there's a number of these that have been found, uh, archaeological uh, discoveries of unearthed a lot of different um, 
artifacts with writing on them. And this one uh, just uh, goes back to about 840, uh, so roughly the kind of era we're looking at here. And Amisha tells how Chemosh, their god, apparently had helped them um, after he'd been angered by them, um, but he helped them to gain victory over Israel. He'd allowed them, apparently, according to their belief, to be subjugated by Israel. But now they try and break free, and it's on this document that's been found, extra-biblical, um, but just corroborates and supports what the Bible says about this time. And then verse 2, we read, And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said, Go unto them and inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. Now, what he was doing and uh, how he fell, possibly some commentators suggest he may well have been drunk, maybe, but we don't know. Um, But typically they'd have been walking around the top part of their house and there'd have been possibly a little bit of wall or something that he lent on or whatever, or a window maybe, fell through. Either way... He ends up falling and becomes very ill as a result of this. And rather than go to God, he decides he's going to go to this pagan deity. Now, you may remember the name Ekron. It was one of the five cities that the Philistines had had. Um, There they'd worshipped a number of false gods and different gods. Well, Baal-zebub is Lord of the Flies. Now, you may have heard that title before, but that's what it means. And literally, that was what they worshipped. Now... It's incredible, isn't it, that when you reject the worship of God, you end up worshipping all sorts of things. And really, there's no logic in worshipping flies. I mean, flies are, are wonderful creatures. I mean, if you consider a fly, they've got these incredible eyes. You know, you've got a fly that's flying around the room, you go to grab it, and the, it's not there. I mean, Marlo and I were, were doing this yesterday, we had some flies coming in, and every time I was trying to catch it, you know, you just don't get them. They move so quickly. They've got incredible eyesight. And again, the, the wings, the, the, the gyroscopes effectively under their wings allow them just to turn so quickly in whichever direction they want to go. They are incredible creatures. And the thing I really want to know about a fly is how a fly can fly along and suddenly land feet first on the ceiling. At what point does it flip over? If it's going along, it's got to be flying normal way up, and then suddenly it, it flips. That's just very, very clever. Maybe you don't think about these things, but um, you know, flies really are a wonderful uh, design, but they're not God. They're not something that we can worship. And you look at ancient cultures, and you know, you think, well, that's just ignorance. But is it? When you look at the things we worship, you know, it's incredible the things that people place as their gods today. You know, the point is, when you reject the one true God, you'll end up worshiping anything. And it becomes foolish. So this is what Ahaziah does, sends messages to go and inquire as to whether he's going to get better. Now we're told, but the angel of the Lord. Now that should just draw your attention because this phrase, the angel of the Lord, occurs a number of times in the Old Testament. And it's always a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ or vision of Jesus Christ. This is God appearing in some sort of physical form that can be seen. We see with Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, we see a number of other times uh, throughout Scripture with Samson's parents and so on. Um, And one of the clear examples, of course, is with Hagar, when Hagar flees from Abraham uh, and Sarah, and there she's met by the angel of the Lord. And we're told very clearly that it's God that speaks to her. So this is quite interesting because... God doesn't just send an angel. This is God himself that comes to speak to Elijah at this particular moment with a particular message. And he says, uh, said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. And say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? So, quite simply, is it because you don't think there's a God in Israel? That's really the import of what's being said. And so they're given this message to take back. And then Elijah carries on. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. And Elijah departed. I wonder what these men thought. Because the fact that, as we see now, they turn round, they must have held Elijah in fairly high regard. Because they've been given a mission by the king. To not fulfill that mission could have very costly effects. Because we read, when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, why are you now turned back? 
And I don't think that was just a casual, oh, nice to see you, I wasn't expecting you back so soon. I think this is kind of a, almost a rebuke in what Ahaziah now says to these individuals. Why have you come back? I gave you a job to do. Why haven't you done it? And they say, they said unto him, there came a man up to meet us and said unto us, go turn again to the king that sent you. And say unto him, thus says the Lord, is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you sendest, that thou sendest to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. Just wonder whether these individuals, as they're walking back and they're talking about who's going to actually deliver this message to the king. Now you could do it. You're better at speaking than I am. I'm not going to say that. Imagine going to the king and saying, um, well, we met a, a chap and he said, you're going to die. Um, that's what they say to him. And he said unto them, what manner of man was he which came uh, to meet you and told you these words? And they said unto him, uh, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he says, this is Ahaziah says, there's huh, Elijah the Tishbite. Straight away he recognizes. Elijah has this kind of uh, um, possibly unfortunate tag, but he's a, he's a hairy man. Now, possibly not just hairy uh, in terms of uh, hair on his skin, but could have been to do with the clothing he was wearing. Um, animal skins or whatever else um, but either way very clearly identifiable and the king knows who it is that has sent them then the king sent unto him uh, just to back up a second because if you remember Ahab had had this showdown with Elijah on top of Mount Carmel Ahab's, Ahab's 450 prophets had been put to death Jezebel had another 400 Prophets for Ashtaroth, the goddess that she worships, that weren't put to death at that point. And so there's still this been this kind of uh, death sentence pronounced on Elijah. And so now the king, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, is still intent really to destroy him. So he sends a captain of 50 uh, with his 50. So we've got the captain and then another 50 men. And they went to him. And behold, he sat on the top of a hill. Now it says in the, the translation we have, a hill, uh, in the, the uh, Hebrew, um, this is uh, very emphatic, it's sat on top of the hill. Now there's only two hills really that appear in Elijah's life. One of them is Horeb, uh, Mount Sinai, which is way down in Arabia. The other one is Mount Carmel. And that's where most commentators believe this now takes place, and I do because of the context and what we see. So they travel Possibly a day, a couple of days journey up to where Elijah is. And they speak to him, thou man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and the 50. Now, the last time they were on this mountain, God had allowed fire to come down. And burnt up that sacrifice that was there, if you remember. And Elijah is there again. And really, his authority is being challenged. The fact that he stands for God. You know, all that took place, effectively, counts for nothing in Ahaziah's eyes. Even though Baal had been exposed to be a fraud and not a real God at all. All of that is put to one side. And presumptuously now, Ahaziah sends out these men to come and bring him back. And Elijah says, okay, if I really am a man of God... The God that effectively you deny, that you really reject and have no regard for. Then let fire come down. And we're told, and they came down, fire from heaven, and consumed him and his fifty. Now obviously word gets back to the king. Again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus has the king said, come down quickly. So again, it's kind of almost an arrogance in the tone here. Elijah answered and said unto him, if I be a man of God, again, remind you the God that you reject, the God that you don't want to turn to. Well, let that God bring down fire from heaven and consume thee and the fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and, the fi- and his fifty. Now, before we look at the third group of people that are sent. I just want to draw your attention to a portion of scripture that we find in Luke's gospel. We read in Luke chapter 9 verse 51, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So speaking now of Jesus, he knows that time is getting near for him to go down towards Jerusalem, getting ready for his crucifixion. He knows why he's going. 
And we told and he sent messages before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. So driving down country and they're looking for somewhere to stay. And they send into the village of the Samaritans, and again there's been this friction between the Samaritans, and you'll understand more about why that friction occurs as we study on through Kings. But nevertheless, they get there to make ready for him. And then we're told, and they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now, it seems to be that the fact that they didn't want to have him come and stay, because they knew that he was heading to Jerusalem. They rejected Jerusalem as being of any real significance. They said that in Samaria, that's where God would reside, not in Jerusalem. And so that because of this, they say, you know, you're going to Jerusalem, therefore we're not going to make you welcome here. Bear in mind, Samaria is the capital where Ahaziah is ruling from as well, back in Kings. In the New Testament, at this point, we read verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will thou command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Now they're mindful of the passage we're reading, and they're a little bit indignant that they won't allow Jesus to, to reside and to stay with them. So they say, Lord, let us call fire down on heaven, from heaven on them. Possibly a little bit uh, impulsive there. <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them. And said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So that's the, the portion that we have from the New Testament. But of course, that was then. At that point, Jesus hadn't come to bring judgment. Jesus had come to offer his own life as a sacrifice and payment for sins. See, the first time Jesus came, the Jews thought he was going to come and establish his kingdom, and they were confused that he didn't. And Jesus came to offer his own life. Just as on Carmel, the first time, this innocent substitute, this bullock, is offered up as a sacrifice. You see, on Carmel the first time, God's wrath didn't fall upon the prophets of Baal or on Ahab or any of the others that were there or on the children of Israel. God's wrath fell upon this sinless substitute whose blood was shed to atone for the people. See, the first time the fire of God's wrath fell on Christ on the cross, as Jesus said to his disciples, he wasn't there to bring wrath upon the people. Not at that point. But you see, next time, it will fall in judgment on those who have rejected him. And we read in books like Daniel, and particularly in books like Revelation, of the judgment that is coming on this unbelieving world. And God will bring judgment. And there's a number of scriptures that you can look at and reference as a result. You see, these are people who have ignored the signs that he has given just as Ahaziah is ignoring the signs and the things that had gone before. You see, the first time, it was God's grace. The second time, it's God's judgment. See, on Carmel, the first time, the fire fell on the sacrifice. Now, the fire of God's judgment falls on the pride and arrogant ones who have rejected the signs that God has shown. And just as it is in this depiction here in the Old Testament. The first time the fire falls on the sacrifice, the second time fire comes down on the same mountain on those who have rejected God. So it's going to be the first time Jesus came, God's wrath fell upon him. But next time, the wrath of God is going to fall upon those who have rejected the only way of escape, and that is through Jesus Christ. You see, we can't pay for our sin. We can't pay for the transgression. Everything we have done, there's been an offence to God. We can't pay for that. And God demands judgment and justice. So someone's got to pay it. And if we don't take the only way out that God has made available, then we will stand before God and we will have to answer for everything we've ever thought, said and done. And nobody will stand before a holy God. Verse 13 of 2 Kings chapter 1 carries on. And he sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. No doubt, obviously again heard what's happened. But this man comes humbly. And besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. 
He pleads for he pleads for grace effectively, and that's exactly what he gets. You see, even in the midst of judgment, God's grace is there for those that call out to him. You see, anyone that calls out, anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's as simple as that. Verse 14 carries on, where he says, Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. Again, that humility that we see. And the angel of the Lord, now notice again the angel of the Lord appear. This is God speaking directly to Elijah. The angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. Now, just to give you an idea again, this is Samaria. This is where Ahaziah is. This is where uh, Ahab, effectively, or Omri, really, but Ahab had made his capital. Uh, And then this is Carmel, the mountain range up here. And so they're going to travel down from this point, probably coming down the Jezreel Valley, down to Samaria. Okay, so it's probably a couple of days' journey from that point. And eventually they get there. And he said unto him, Thus says the Lord, Forasmuch as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Now, <laughs> Elijah's been here before. Remember the first time we see Elijah, he just waltzes into the palace without any invitation, seems to bypass all the security guards. They're probably looking at this hairy, possibly a little bit uh, uh, smelly man, I don't know. Um, but he walks in anyway and just presents himself before King Ahab and says, there's not going to be rain or dew for three and a half years, and walks out again. And now he's coming back to the same palace. He's familiar with this place. He walks straight in, up to the king, and he gives him this message. This isn't a, you know, unless you repent. This is a, God has already decreed this is what's going to happen. There's no condition here that if you obey, if you repent, if you turn, you'll be okay. You see, we read in scripture so much about the long-suffering of God. But there will come a time that that line is drawn. And certainly for Ahaziah, he's come to that place. And he's told that he shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram reigned in his stead in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. So now we get confusing because we've got two Jehorams. These are two different characters. So uh, Jehoram, that's the, the brother of Ahaziah, now reigns in the northern kingdom. And he starts his reign in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, down south. Okay, uh, And again, because he had no son. So the he is Ahaziah. He died. He had no son. Again, so that's talking about Ahaziah. And the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Once again, I mentioned before, the, at the end of your life, all the achievements, all the certificates, all the awards won't really count for much. Your standing with God is the thing that will really matter. Uh, right, just to make it a little easier again, these are the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, so Jeroboam, going back to the beginning, all the way down here, we get down to Omri, Ahab that we've been talking about, Ahaziah, the king we've just been talking about, and then his brother then comes to the throne, and we see Elisha is the one that's ministering during this time. And then if we look at the kings of Judah, we've now come down as far. There's not as many kings. They all have typically longer reigns. Uh, the green ones, as mentioned before, are the good kings. And we'll talk about them in detail when we get there. Um, but Jehoshaphat's son, and we'll look at more in detail about him uh, in Chronicles, Lord willing. Um, but then his son, Jehoram, now is the one that's reigning down south. And we're going to see his son for a short time will reign. And then Queen Athaliah will come to the throne. So, let's move into chapter 2. And we read, And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elijah said unto him, As the Lord lives, and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. Now the Lord has given Elisha to Elijah as a servant, somebody to support him, to help him in his ministry. You know, a lot of us look for an easy way out. And if we're given an opportunity not to have to do something, very often people will take that opportunity. And here, Elisha could have said, oh, okay, well, I'll stay here, that's fine. But he doesn't. He gets involved. He wants to be with Elijah. And obviously, Elisha is aware 
And how this had all come about, we're not given the background. But Elisha is aware that Elijah is going to be departing. God wants to take Elijah back home. And so we carry on. Verse 3 says, And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold thy peace. Shh. I know. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. So now on to Jericho together. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elisha said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee. And they went on. Or they too went on. So they now they carry on together. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. Now again, not quite sure what they know, but they know something's about to happen. And they too stood by Jordan, and Elisha took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither. So the two went over on dry ground. So Elijah, again, just doing this miracle, obviously led of God to do this, just strikes the water with his cloak, with his coat, and they just part and they cross over. It came to pass, and when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask, what shall I do for thee before I be taken away from thee? And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. So Elisha is saying, You know, I want to be twice as good as you are. I want to have double the anointing that you have. And interestingly enough, we read that. If we look at the miracles that Elijah does, we count eight of them. If we look at the miracles that Elisha then does, we count 16 of them. So God seemingly does fulfill this uh, promise that is made by Elijah to Elisha. And it came to pass, as they went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Now, possibly that act of tearing his own clothes, it's now because he's going to take on Elisha's clothing. He's going to take the mantle, the clothing of Elijah, rather, sorry. Um, Elisha moving from servant, as it were, to now master. He's now going to be the one that is going to take the lead, that God is going to work through. What we see here, though, is a, a situation, and there's a number of occasions in Scripture, uh, four actually, we could cite, where people are taken up alive into heaven without dying. We read of Enoch in the book of Genesis chapter 5, that he was taken up alive into heaven without dying. Elijah here doesn't die, he's just taken up alive into heaven. Jesus, after the resurrection, is ascend, he sends into a cloud, he just goes up into heaven. And of course, there's another group that we read about in the book of Thessalonians. The Bible speaks of those who believe in Jesus, who are alive in the last days. There's going to come a day when the Lord will come back and he will take all those who are alive, that believe in Jesus, are alive up into heaven. And it's going to be an absolutely traumatic time for the people on the earth. As suddenly, millions of people will literally disappear. And the government will have all sorts of uh, explanations in place and so on. Some years ago, um, Billy Graham uh, had the opportunity uh, to go and speak to the then American president. And one of the questions he was asked was about the rapture. You know, the heads of state are aware that the Bible teaches this. And for a long time, there's been all sorts of things that have been uh, spoken of and whatever else. Even in the film 2012... Um, they were talking about the various prophecies by religious groups and they mentioned about the rapture as being the one that Christians believed that would be some sort of apocalyptic event. The rapture won't be an apocalyptic event in that sense. It's simply going to be the Lord is just going to take all the Christians out of the way before he brings judgment. You see, all through the scriptures we find that God promises to protect his own before judgment comes. He takes Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he brings judgment. He brings Noah safely into the ark before he brings his judgment. 
He took the faithful of Israel safely out of the land to Babylon before he brought his judgment on the land. And then he brought them back afterwards. And we see this so many times. We'll talk more about this some of the time, uh, about the rapture of the church. And actually is a, a post that's gone up on the website this week. Uh, which goes into the rapture in detail, looking at all the various scriptures. And it's one of the kind of most bizarre prophecies we find in scripture. People have a really hard time getting their heads around it. But it's unquestionably what Jesus taught, it's what the apostles believed and taught, it's there. And again, God is going to do that before judgment comes. He's going to take his church out of the way, and then judgment will come on this world. So this situation, Elijah uh, being taken out of the way. And why was Elijah taken this way? Don't really fully know. But some of the possible reasons are that it's prophesied that Elijah will come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. We read that uh, in the book of Malachi. Jesus himself spoke of this, that there is a future work for Elijah to do uh, during that time of tribulation. I just want to read to you just comments from Oswald Chambers. Because this is interesting as well. He just says, it's not wrong to depend upon Elijah as long as God gives him to you. But remember the time will come when he will have to go. When he stands no more to you as your guide and leader. Because God does not intend he should. You say, I cannot go on without Elijah. God says you must. Now, for some of you, there may be people in your life that have been like spiritual uh, Elijahs to you. People that have tutored you or encouraged you in your walk with the Lord and maybe the Lord takes them home or maybe they move away or something happens you know sometimes you feel that I'm not ready to to step out on my own I'm not ready to to pick up the baton and run with it well Elisha was in the same position and God now calls Elisha into a situation that he's just really he's not ready for but God will give the grace one of the Pastors uh, at the conference this week, um, uh, Pastor um, Sandy Adams from a church in, I believe it's Alabama in the States, uh, was speaking. He said that he became a pastor. He's been a pastor now for about 34 years. But he said he's just learned now that God throws him in at the deep end. You know, sometimes you want someone that's a bit more experienced to follow and, you know, just to see what they do. But he said not long after he'd been a pastor, he got a uh, called from a family, their son had returned from, from Vietnam some years before and had been really uh, messed up by the whole experience. Um, and he went to the house to see the son and the son wouldn't even come out of the bedroom to talk to him. His son was in his mid-thirties. Um, and then in the middle of the night he got a phone call to say that this son had tried to set his own room on fire and then shot himself. And as the dad had gone into the room, um, the first thing he did was try and put out the fire and then found that his son had been killed. He said, and, and Sandy was saying, you know, that it was really hard because then the dad rang him and said, I want you to take the funeral. He said, I hadn't done a funeral. I'd never led a funeral. And he said, you know, it, it's so hard. Sometimes God throws you in at the deep end. He said, you know, why couldn't he have done a funeral, the first one, for some great saint who'd been part of the church for years and just say some nice things and just be really happy? He said, but God gives like a level five one, doesn't go in at the beginning. Yeah, but that's so often the way. And, and Sandy was saying that his own ministry and experience, so often... He's been thrust into the deep end. He said he knows if God calls him to do something, he just walks down the deep end getting ready to jump now. And for us, sometimes it can be like that. We, yeah, we'd like to have somebody that we can uh, look to, that we can draw from. But sometimes God takes those people out of the, the way. And then we have to step up and step forward. And Elisha here, now taking on the mantle of Elijah. We read, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him uh, and smote the waters. So now just doing what Elijah had done and said, where is the God of Elijah? Now that's not a doubting phrase. That's very much, if you remember, there's these 50 prophets that have been looking on, watching this. And he makes this declaration. And when he had said, uh, also uh, had smitten the waters, they parted hither and hither and Elisha went over. And people now seeing, aware that Elisha has now been given this calling and anointing of God. If you remember, there's a couple of steps to this journey, um, Jordan being the first uh, place. Uh, Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, Jordan is the type of separation where there is no fellowship with anyone else, where no one can take the responsibility for you. You have to put to the test now what you learned when you were with Elijah. 
You've been to Jordan over and over again with Elijah, but now you are up against it alone. It's no use saying that you cannot go. This experience has come and you must go. If you want to know whether God is the God you have faith to believe him to be, then go through your Jordan alone. You know, and God may be calling you right now to go through a step that you've never taken before. To step out and do something you've never done before. Maybe you've seen others. But you know, this is where we learn to walk by faith, not by sight. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah does rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, He shall not send. So they're saying, Look, let's go see if we can find Elijah. Maybe God's just moved him somewhere. <laughs> Elisha says, Don't bother going. There's no point going. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Okay, go, go, have a look. Knowing full well they're not going to find anything. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he sent them, Did I not sound to you? Go not. See, Elisha knew that there was no point in looking. You know, sometimes we waste a lot of time, out of sincerity, chasing things that we shouldn't be chasing. You know, we need to be listening to God intently, listening to the people that God places in our lives. And sometimes we can try doing a particular thing, because we think it's the right thing. Uh, These guys were sincere, but they wasted three days doing something that was not going to bear any fruit. You see, God was already speaking to them, or trying to speak to them through Elisha, but they didn't listen Another comment of Oswald Chambers, speaking of Jericho now, he says, Jericho is the place where you have seen your Elijah do great things. When you come to your Jericho, you have a strong disinclination to take the initiative and trust in God. You want someone else to take it for you. If you remain true to what you learned with Elijah, you will get the sign that God is with you. You see, God will never leave us or forsake us. If God calls you into ministry, into serving, and by the way, we use that word ministry. Every single one of us as part of the church should be involved in ministry. It doesn't mean standing up the front. It just means serving. That's what a minister is, one who serves another. You know, whatever God is calling you into, you know, sometimes it's easy to, to not take the initiative. We don't want to do it. Maybe we've seen other people do things, and God is calling us to take a step. Well, if that's the case, get on with it. God will be with you. Verse 19, And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is not and the ground barren. They've got a problem with the water supply. And he said, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. So it's just kind of a tray in a sense, and they put some salt in this, and they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed these waters. There's shall not be from thence any more death nor barren land. So, throwing this salt into the waters, we read, so the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying uh, of Elisha, which he spoke. So, another miracle now that is done by the hand of Elisha, as God just works in this situation. Uh, This whole city now has a great, fresh uh, water supply that they can drink of. And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city. Now, just to clarify, uh, this phrase in the Hebrew is used a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's used of Joseph by the time he's in Egypt, when we know that he goes there at 17 years old, um, and uh, even older than that. And it's used of a number of other uh, individuals in the Old Testament. It's not talking about children in the sense we think of children. These are young people. Let me put it this way. We're probably dealing with some kind of rather obnoxious teenagers or maybe even uh, young men in their 20s um, that have just got a bit of an attitude problem because they come out of the city and possibly even um, their parents knowing what's going on and allowing them to go. And, we talk, and they mocked him. and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Now, just poking fun at this man of God. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed him in the name of the Lord. 
Now, Elisha didn't arrange this, but then we read, and there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. So we don't know how many the entire group was, but 42 of them end up, it doesn't say they got killed or they died, but they end up uh, getting a bit of a rough deal from some bears that just come out of the wood. Um, you know, God does protect those that are his. And we've seen it so many times through scripture. And uh, God promises to watch out and look over us. And it's interesting, you know, people that curse God's people, um, they often end up in predicaments themselves that they would have never wanted. And there's many examples we could cite of that. But to carry on, verse 25, And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. So now he kind of makes his journey going back uh, to Samaria where the king was. And we read just another closing comment from Oswald Chambers of that last place. At your Bethel you will find yourself at your wit's end and at the beginning of God's wisdom. And when you get to your wit's end and feel inclined to succumb to panic, don't. Stand true to God and he will bring his truth out in a way that will make your life a sacrament. Put into practice what you learnt with your Elijah. Use his cloak and pray. Determine to trust in God and do not look for Elijah anymore. You know, for us, it's no more looking over our shoulders. It's time to move forward in our walk with God. And maybe there's been people, people even that we've used from a study point of view or books that we've read of people. And sometimes we kind of rely on those individuals. Well, God kind of wants us to step out on our own, just like Elisha is now doing. Lots of challenges in here. Um, some of these challenges may well be for individuals and personal things. But again, God just working. And we'll see Elisha's ministry carry on as we follow on with the text next week. So let's just bow our hearts. Well, Father, as we think on these things, Lord, we just are mindful again as we looked in those uh, early portion this morning. Thinking of how your grace was poured out the first time on Carmel. But the second time, these people that have rejected you, Lord, judgment falls. Father, help us to accept, to receive gladly the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To know that you have taken the wrath from God for us. And Lord, help us to be bold enough to step out in our spiritual walks with you, to walk by faith. And Lord, as we see Elisha now learning to do, Lord, all the safety nets, the harnesses have all been removed. Lord, the the comfort blanket's gone. And now, Lord, it's time to walk out, to step out, and to be men and women of God in these days in which we live. Father, raise up a faithful people, we pray, that would serve you faithfully, to bring glory to you, Father, just impress these things upon our hearts as we go from here this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.